So the first thing I want to talk about a little bit is costumes. Um, so I guess I'll approach it, as, there are different ways to approach the question of why do we wear costumes in Purim, right? Like there's a historical question of, well, it seems like costumes emerged in like 15th century Italy and maybe it has to do with carnival, right? So like you could just sort of answer the question that way, like we do it because it seemed like fun and so they started to do it like other people were doing it, right? Um, but it doesn't, I don't think that's like totally satisfactory explanation. It's certainly not like a satisfactory sort of like level of knowledge about like what is this custom about or where does it come from. So just, first of all, I wanted to show like some of the earlier sources that talk about it, one of which we've seen quoted previously. Um, and at the end, maybe I'll sort of give some thoughts, some more concluding thoughts. Um, so if we just start, right, the Megillah itself has a lot of clothing changing going on. Can anybody, without, whatever, you can guess what these things are going to be, but what, where in the Megillah story do people change their clothes? Doesn't Esther change when she goes, she's in the beauty contest before the king? Right. So I'm not sure it actually talks about her clothing there, but it's clear that there's like a makeover of some sort that happens. Apparently there was, there were places where like the custom was for girls to like do this kind of like makeover before party. <laughs> I know, it sounds awesome, right? Um... I mean, even calling it the beauty contest, right? It's like, yeah, you could tell that to your little kids, but, like, it's not exactly what's happening. Um, Mordecai also puts on sackcloth and ashes, so he changes his clothing. Um, right, so Mordecai... The best thing about is, I mean, he wants to be dressed like this. Right. He well. Exactly. Right. So that that some a lot of that happens in chapters four and five and six and eight. Let's see. So if you just look at the beginning of chapter four, which is on page seventeen ninety one. Amazing. It is. Right. Mordechai. Once he finds out what happened, he he tears his clothes and he puts on sakva afer, um, which is funny because right, like first he tears his real clothes, then he puts on his other morning clothes. Anyways, it sounds like it's kind of interesting, right? This is not like what people do today, where they like put on like some sort of burlap sack over their clothes, like you're wearing sack wafer instead of your clothes. This idea, I, I believe, um, right? He puts on um, sackcloth. And he gets right up to the. Um, the gate of the king's house, but you can't go in because you're you're only allowed to wear real clothes there. And Esther gets all upset, but people come and tell Esther, um, and she gets upset, and she sends new clothes, right, in verse 4, about to shishlach begadim lehalbishet Mordechai, lehasir sakom elav lohibel. She says, right, like, put on your regular clothes. He says, no, I can't, and here's why. Um, she, he tells her, like, this whole story. Um, and at first she says, well, what am I supposed to do? I can't go to the king, and then Mordechai gives her this whole speech about, you know, maybe this is why you became the queen to begin with. Um, and then at the very end, she says in verse 14, Right, so fine, go collect all the Jews who are present in Shushan, and fast for me, seems to be the same as fasting, for three days, we will also fast, me, me, me in my palace. Right, I will come to the king against the law, which we'll talk about at the very end of class, that line and how it's been interpreted later. As I am lost, I am lost. Right? And then, which means what? The shot thereof means. Right? Avadati, avadati is how you say it in 
Right when you read the no. Yeah. Right, she says, right, you know, like, I'm going to do this thing. I told you that you're not allowed to go to the king if he hasn't called you, but since you impressed on me, what an emergency this is, which is kind of funny because it's actually like 12 months away or 11 months away. Um, but, right, because you impressed on me this emergency, I'm going to go anyways, and if he decides to kill me, he kills me. Right? And then we see the Telbash is right? Verse 1, right, in order to go, she puts on um, her royal clothes. So that's sort of like this. There's a lot of clothing stuff going on here, um, and it's it's sort of interesting, right? Because because of the emergency, Mordechai puts on his sackcloth and he refuses to take them off, even though Esther sends him clothes. But because of the emergency, also what Esther ends up doing is dressing up more, not dressing down, right? Yeah. And that's a, it. Sort of brings you this idea of like the inside and outside is different, right? Like because she's convinced of the urgency of the situation, i.e., she's convinced that Mordechai is correct to be wearing sackcloth. She herself has to sort of like completely internalize that and put on the opposite in order to sort of make anything work. Um, so that I mean, that's sort of connected in general to like you know the themes of the Megillah, the themes of like Esther as sort of like what does it mean for a Jew to have power in the diaspora? Like it doesn't necessarily mean that you just get to do what you want. It means that you have to sort of like find underhanded ways of arriving at your need, your own protection, or your needs. Um, so that right, like, it's not. It's not crazy to connect like various kinds of dressing up with Purim, and then partly, right? If you look at verse, right? Then there's the whole thing with with Mordechai, sorry, with Mordechai and Haman, who gets to wear the king's clothes, right? But first, that's in, in chapter six. In chapter ten, right? Then we have right after, sort of like you know Haman gets killed, hooray! Um, right? They send out the new the new messages, and if you look at verse fifteen. Like Mordechai came out in his fancy clothes, right? Now for real. Now not just one time to ride in the street, but Mordechai came out with his fancy clothes and everybody was happy. Um, it's sort of ambiguous. Everybody, all the Jews in Shushan, unclear. Um, so, right. First of all, and this is one of the psukim that we read out loud when we read the Megillah, right, Mordechai meaning this is sort of like, this symbol of Mordechai has finally made it is kind of part of this Jewish experience of Purim, a big part of it. What so, was that, no? 15? Yeah, 8.15. Oh, 8.15. Oh, did I write 14? I'm sorry. 8.15, yeah. Oh, maybe I didn't say that, I'm sorry. No, yeah, I know I, I might have said that. Right, so 8.15. Um, just one thing to note, we'll, we'll, we'll keep this pasuk in mind for later, we will mention it again. Um, so I believe, although I'm not an amazing historian of this, this is the first time, the, source number two, Mahari Mintz, who's of Judah Mintz in the 15th century in the Rhineland, it seems, although he might have had to flee there later, um, was, it's sort of the first halach, mentioned in a halachic source of this practice of dressing up on Purim, which is partly a practice of masks and partly a practice of, of changing clothing, right? Um, so I didn't have a chance to translate everything, but I will I'll read most of what I have here, I think, unless you object, um, for the flavor, right? Al-davar levishah partsufim, right? Regarding wearing partsufim as faces, right? So we're talking about masks. Shinohagim lilbosh bachurim v'gam betulot zekenim im ne'arim v'purim. That they have the custom to wear both, you know, boys and girls, old and young, on Purim. Meaning, like, it seems like this is already, by his time, a very common custom. And as we'll see, he... Okay, actually, not as we'll see. Um, right, so it's already a common custom by his time, though not necessarily that much earlier, as we'll see later, right? Hinei ra'iti, 
שכבר פסק להתיר אהובי ואמיתי somebody קרקע. Right. So somebody I know, like a rabbi who I respect, has already said this is permitted. Dechula be of kacha rochlim. Everything he says is like you know this fine perfume. Reish kalav, reish gola, ha'eshel hagadol. Right. He's like the head of the diaspora. He's this huge tree. Marina, all these sort of like honorifics that rabbis sometimes talk about each other in their response. Marina, her rabbi, Yakim Segal, v'hutzika or mishpato ka'asher nimukolimo. Right. He has sort of already published his position on this, and you know he's he's very insightful. Um, by the way, I should say, the, Mahar, the Chuvo, the response of the Maharimans, apparently he was an important decisor at the time. Um, most of his writings were lost, and 15 of his Chuvo were published by his grandson-in-law, was the Maharam something. Mahar, not Maharam, I forget. Maharam something, like, you know, 100 years later or whatever. Um, so this is the 15th, but meaning, like, we, we have only a fraction of his writings. Um, Right, so he's referring to somebody else who already said that this practice, this Purim practice is okay. This dressing up thing. Um, okay. Right, this other rabbi's proofs are like, they show that it's as if God himself has said this. So if you start to doubt him, it's like you're doubting God, God's self. I also want to bring some proofs. Lahatir. Right, in order to permit this. Not because I think that what he said, there's nothing wrong with what he said, right? Not even because he needs my help. Right, he doesn't need my help. Right, he, what he said is like, enough to permit this practice and it's stronger than anything I'm going to say, but still I want to add, if he's going to sort of finesse why he wants to do it. Do we know who he's talking about? I am not sure who he's talking about. Okay. Right. But I came because, like, I consider this activity of, of sort of explaining why this practice is permitted to be a good thing, right? I want to get my reward for sort of jumping in on the bandwagon of explaining why this is okay. Right. In order to sort of give, bring proofs to explain. Right. What did the previous Torah scholars understand, Shadid Gadal the Islam, who I grew up near them, right? those people, like the rabbis of my youth, their children and their children-in-law all used to dress up in the way I've described, right? Um, and wearing these masks, they permitted this, apparently, right? Because they did not permit it. Right? So what was their explanation? So we can hear sort of historically there's a few interesting things. Right? First of all, he's saying this this practice precedes my time, but he's not saying the rabbis themselves did this, right? It seems like, you know, it it may have started with the young people who were a little older than him when they were young. Right? Now he's describing it as everybody young and old does it. But when he's describing what he saw in his youth, he's saying that the children of the rabbis were sort of doing it. It's not clear that this was sort of a forever long-standing custom. It seems like it's a relatively recent thing, or certainly not a universal thing. Um, right? If it were, God forbid, any even like a little bit of a sin in this, right? it would have been inconceivable for them to be quiet and not to, to protest. 
the Koshikane, the Kalvachomer, the Isur Lav, right? And all the more so if it were like an actual biblical prohibition, right? What's the possible biblical prohibition here? Dressing in, in somebody else's, in the another right. section. Cross dressing or whatever is yeah. not allowed, right? Men are not supposed to wear women's clothes, women are not supposed to wear men's clothes. It's a verse in the Torah. So he's saying, right, if, if what they're doing, it sure looks like it's against a verse in the Torah, but if it really were, these great rabbis would never have just let it happen. Um, they must have had some reason why it was completely permissible. There's nothing wrong with it. I don't know who that is, but some other person who's been like railing against this custom apparently, right? Like, you know, he shouldn't be able to say that he's calling all these names, right? He's, he's a Sadducee, he's sort of like out of the rabbinic tradition because, right, the rabbis clearly permitted this. Okay, and he says, right. He is sort of like raising doubts about mitatan here, their beds, but it means their offspring, right? He's raising doubts about their offspring, right? Like it's not even just that they saw the random, random townspeople doing it, their own children were doing it, and if it wasn't allowed, they would have had to say something. Um, right, so what is the actual proof? So there's a certain bright in Masechad which says, skipping to the middle here, Tanura Banan, Israel Hamistaper Min Hagoi, No Choshesh. Right? A Jew who is getting a haircut from a non Jew is allowed to look in the mirror. Right? So there's a few there's a few assumptions underlying here. What's the most basic? When you get a haircut, you're allowed to look in the mirror. What does that imply about looking in the mirror in general? Not allowed. Um. Right. It sounds like a Jew or a, a Jewish male in this case is not allowed to look in the mirror. In general, a Jewish man is not supposed to look in the mirror. This is this appears in many rabbinic sources. is obviously observed in the breach today for reasons that we'll actually see here. Um, right. The other. So what was this? Why? Why is the haircut a time when you're allowed to? Because there's a guy standing over you with a sharp saying. And if you're not careful, he might accidentally kill you. Um, meaning not so accidentally. There's like a major mistrust of non-Jewish barbers in like the Amoraic period. I don't know if it's founded period. I don't know if it's founded or not founded, but like they do not trust non-Jewish barbers. Is it also Were there Jewish barbers? I mean, you would think that would be the most that obvious That seems solution. like the obvious solution, yeah. I guess it depends on like where you're living and how many, meaning like if people are living very diffusely, maybe not, I don't know. Um, it's actually interesting because they did trust Samaritan barbers. So, right, that, there's part of what I left out. Samaritan barbers, uh, called Kutim, right, sort of like these like, quasi-Jews, right, they're, they're, they're not trying to kill you even if we have disagreements with them about how Jewish they are. Um, okay, so I mean, that's the assumption here, right? Venera um, Kihatam, right, so if, if it seems like you're not supposed to look in a mirror, it seems like the reason is Mishum lo yobash gever sin latisha, right, the verse that you're not, a man should not wear a woman's garment, um, the Targum says a man should not sort of prepare himself with women's stuff, not just clothing, but sort of do womanly things. Um, right? We, we have this other. Let's get this actually. Um, uh, okay. Just very sad. Umihu no asur. The end of this paragraph, four lines up. Before the ellipses, 
right? If you're doing it to make yourself pretty, I guess you would say, right? Men are not supposed to be pretty. I mean, this whole the whole conception of gender here is one for another discussion, fine, right? But um, right, aval he's right? If you're shaving yourself, you're obviously allowed to look in the mirror. Is basically what he's saying, right? The point is, right? If you have a problem with your eye, you need to put something in it. It's not like you have to sort of like blindly poke around trying to put your eye drops in. You can look in the mirror, um, right? Right? The person God, the one who understands, who sort of sees into people's hearts will know. Meaning it's not that like the activity of looking in a mirror is always prohibited. It's prohibited if you're doing it for the wrong reason. And God knows what reason you're really doing it for. Are all of his tishuvot like that? Um, what do you mean? Like, he just goes on and on. Nothing else we've read. I would say this is very common for responsible literature. Okay. Meaning like, they bring a bunch of cases, how does this case impact I mean, I mean, I left out stuff because he brings a bunch of different versions of Cho's vote. Um, I mean, all of this going on about, you know, how great the rabbis are. I would say that's also common. Okay. Um, it's not always as extended, but particularly like to write about a living rabbi is sort of like, it's, it's common to have a lot of honorifics in Shavod. Okay. Um, yes. <laughs> sure. Um, but I don't understand why there's any problem with looking in there? I mean, descriptively, it's because it's considered a womanly activity. And womanly activities are forbidden to men by this verse that forbids men to wear women's clothing. It's extended to all sort of activities. Well, the rabbi I had, you know, living in Israel, Ramallah, he and his wife dressed up as each other. Right, and so that's... It was very funny. So that's sort of what we're talking about, right? He's saying, he's dealing with a, a common practice of on Purim, people dress, people switching clothes, switching genders of clothes, against a background where the general rule seems to be that not only you're not to, to, supposed to wear clothes of the opposite gender, but you're not supposed to do even like all these other things, like looking in a mirror and whatever. And so he's sort of he's setting these rules, but he's going to try and explain how those two things fit with each other, okay. right? So so far, the one thing we've seen is well, it depends on what reason you're doing it for, right? Um, but mostly he's saying that women are the ones who look in mirrors, and that's why men right. are not supposed to. Right. Um, right, so that, then there's this, let's read this paragraph, I guess. Um, the toast vote, a different toast vote, I, Matsati Basof, I found at the end. Yisrael, right? They allowed the like people, the, house, the men in the house of Rebbe, Rebbe Yehuda Hanasi, to look in a mirror, and the reason given there is because they were, you know, they had to present themselves before the king, so they needed to know what they were going to look like. Um, right? These are only forbidden because of this verse of not wearing clothing. So if you live in a place where things are not gender, right, where like a certain activity is gender neutral, everybody does the same thing, then you can do it, right? An example, so for example, um, and this is what I think must be the opinion of the Gaonim who allowed men men to shave their armpits and their pubic area, right? So this is obviously culturally determined, right? Is that a womanly thing to do or is that a thing that everybody does or nobody does? Fine, but maybe in those days there was nobody who does it, right? But he's saying like, Right, in the Gemara, there seems to be certain places where the assumption is that that's only something that women do, but there are other places where there's an assumption, right, by the time of the Gaonim, it was something that both men and women did in general, so therefore it was permitted. 
אמר להני תוספות באתר לנהיגי אנשים ונשים בשווה לית במישהו מלובש, right? So we've had two things. First of all, is a man doing it in order to be feminine or is he do it for some other reason? Second of all, right, is it really something that is gendered or is it something that men and women do the same? Um, and then he says, Right. Maybe we'll say that like wearing the opposite gender's clothing is as if like on Purim everything is gender neutral because of the merriment of Purim, which is not like the best argument in my opinion because right, like it's still women's clothing. That's the whole point. That's why it's funny is that it's not, it doesn't belong to you. It's not like some sort of practice that could either be only done by women or could be done by everybody. Right. But he, He's still sort of getting at the idea that like there's some amount of social convention involved. Like for example, it is true that if it's common for people to switch clothing on Purim, then you're not making a statement about your own gender identity by doing so, right? Okay. Um, so maybe that's sort of what he means. Um, right, and then he says with the, something from the smog. Let's skip that paragraph actually. Right. Oh, um, right. oh then. Like, so, uh, I'm anti-gay. Um, I mean, like, welcome to the Torah. <laughs> like, I, I don't know. Is that surprising? Um, yeah, I mean, I would say, like, you're not going to find, like, friendly things in medieval rabbinic texts. It's just, yeah. like, not, I don't know. I mean, like, on some of these things, right, contemporarily, like, there is room for, like, changing conventions, but there's not, like, I, mean, I don't know, right, this is required, it is a major reinterpretative act to, like, make the Torah gay-friendly, I would say. Um, that was... Sorry, I, I had to just say that. No, 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 please. <laughs> I mean, a lot of it sounds very anti-women. Right, yeah. it's like, that's, a, that's for women. Yeah, Can't I touch. Right. I think that's maybe more worried about... That they don't address the gay issue at all. No, but it's not anti-gay in the sense that they're actually thinking about gay because it's not like it's on their radar screen in the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but right in the next paragraph, he just says right that actually there's another opinion that the whole problem with cross-dressing is right if men are going to like sort of try and pass for women so they can be in women's places where they're not supposed to be. Right. So when like people teach this now, they're like you know somebody dresses up so they can go into the women's locker room. It seems it's not obvious that it's just the women's locker room. It could be like the women's part of the market, or like meaning like there were places, <laughs> or the mikvah, or right, or women to go to the market, which might have been only men, meaning stuff like that, that were like, you know, even public places where people are not naked, but like you don't, there was not at the time commingling of the genders. Um, right, so if, that, that, if that's the reason, the truth is that famously, that's the position of Rashi on the person, the Chumash, right, that a man shouldn't dress up like a woman in order to go into the women's locker room or whatever. Um, for you know, for the purposes of whatever immoral, Im- like improper sexual activity. So right, if that's the reason, then like whatever you're doing in Purim is not really even in that category, presumably. Um, and then he cites this chuba, which we've actually seen quoted in the Shemot Hadashim in a previous class. But here we go. Right, Od and I don't know who any of these rabbis are either. Shekatav Rabbeinu Tuvia b'Shem Riva. Right. Right, all the food that the young men are snatching from each other because of the merriment of Purim. Right, even without permission, right, from the time of reading the Megillah until at the end of the Purim Suda, which is two nights, and the day in between. And we saw this in the context of when does the Purim Suda happen. 
right? This seems to suggest that your Purim suit is going through into the night after Purim. But okay, right? So anything, so there's sort of like some sort of wanton behavior of people stealing stuff from each other during this time. V'yomachad. Ain't behind Mishum Gezel, right? There's, it's not really stealing. And you can't, like, after Purim, summon somebody to Beitin and say, you stole my Hamatash, right? right? As long as you don't sort of go overboard based on whatever limits are being set by Tuvei Ha'ir, it's like the municipal leaders, um, right? So this Tuva is talking, it's not, it has nothing to do with wearing it switching clothing or wearing masks. First of all, notice that he hasn't really addressed any halakhic problem with wearing masks, right? Wearing masks is just wearing masks. It's a thing that people do as part of the whole Purim dressing up, but it seems like that should be fine, right? He's really concerned about this switching clothing because it seems to go against an explicit verse in the Torah, but now he's given a few reasons why it would be allowed, right? One is that maybe if your intention is not, if a man's intention is not to act like a woman, then that would be okay. If the intention is not explicitly to like sort of be in places where you're not allowed to be as a man or a woman, and that's okay, meaning for like immoral purposes. Um, or what was the other thing? Or if it's really sort of like a gender neutral activity because like everybody's doing it on Purim. Um, right, and then he says, Right, at that, during that time, it's not stealing. This is the last paragraph. Right, the same activity would be considered stealing on the 13th of Adar and the 16th of Adar during the day, but not in between on Purim. Right, um, right? You're doing like a there is a biblical prohibition of stealing, right, which you would be violating at any other time, but on Purim it's allowed. Right, something that would ordinarily be classified as a biblical prohibition on Purim is nothing because of Simchat Purim, right? Right, because you're not doing it to kind of like get more for yourself at someone's expense. It's like a joke, right? That's what it sounds like. It sounds like these are kind of like practical jokes, or sort of everybody's doing it. I don't know. Maybe also in our case, right? Right? It doesn't matter because since your purpose is not to the underlying forbidden purpose of whatever kind of adultery, literally, rather for like Purim merriment. Right? Just as like. They sort of permit, ordinarily you would think that even if something was technically permitted, you might be like, well, we're not going to just allow you to break this biblical commandment sometimes because then you're going to do it all the time. Since it's like confined to Purim, we, just as we allow people to steal, basically, we can allow them to, um, we can allow them to cross-dress. To get the right? He's saying like basically the impulse towards stealing or towards sort of breaking sexual boundaries should be this, sort of the same, which is an interesting observation, right? I don't know if that's if we would agree with that, but he's saying right, that that impulse towards breaking property boundaries and breaking sexual boundaries is sort of the same, and if we're sort of like, let people do it for one day and we're not worried about spillover. Um, whatever, somebody else has already said that. Signed, um, Yehudimitz. So, there you have it. First of all, some people have raised the point that maybe stealing is not the same as cross-dressing because stealing, right, maybe stealing is permitted because everybody has agreed that it's permitted, right? Stealing is ultimately an interpersonal problem. And if everybody goes into Purim knowing that other people are going to take their hamantashen and I'm going to take someone else's hamantashen, then that's okay. Whereas who is the person who can 
sort of like agree that now cross-dressing is okay. Though maybe you could say, well, the convention on Purim, right, if what is for women and what is for men is determined by convention, right, like some places men wear dresses, some places women wear pants or the other way around, right, then on Purim the convention is that these clothes are not unique for men or for women, right. Um, but in any case, right, so there's a few interesting things. One is that, like, this practice seems to have arisen relatively recently at that time, that he wants to say it's okay, even though not everybody does, that he, by the way of saying why it's okay, he brings up this other practice of people kind of, like, behaving lawlessly with regard to property, but not too much, right? Um, but that's kind of interesting also, that, like, there's this whole sort of Purim fluidity that maybe is not appropriate or appreciated at other times. Um, I don't know, what did you, uh, anyone have anything, anything to add? I know it's, it's sort of like, I, I would say also for me personally, like more from the men-women perspective, but it is like, di- these are difficult ideas conceptually in terms of like, well, what does that mean about us? Or what does it mean that like, you know, looking in a mirror is like so demeaning and womanly for a man, right? Like, you know, I don't know. I don't really have anything intelligent to say about that right now, but, um. It's not surprising that they would say that right. seems to fit into what our images of uh, you know how they look at women. Yeah, and it, yeah, it does. And like, I don't know. What can we say? Um, I don't have anything clever to say about that right now. Um, right, but so this is this is a chuva that permits it, um, permits switching clothes on Purim. Um, and the Ramah, who is the Ashkenazi, right, remember the Ashkenazi glosses on the Shulchan Aruch, codifies it. But the Shulchan Aruch doesn't mention anything about this. I'll, I'll talk about that more in a second, right? At the bottom of page three. Um, that which they are accustomed to wearing masks on Purim, we already see linguistically this is the same as the beginning of the Mahari's Chuba, right? And people are, men and women are switching clothing. Right, there's no prohibition. Because they don't have any of the prohibited intentions. Their only point is like Purim merriment. Right? I, previously in other sources I was translating Simcha Purim as Purim joy, but here it seems to be more, it's not just joy, it's, it's a particular kind of joy, right? which is maybe better translated as merriment. Um, and this is something we haven't seen yet, right? Similarly, wearing rabbinically prohibited kilayim. Kilayim, also known as shotnays, right? You can't wear wool and linen together, right? So he says, similarly, they, they have, it seems like there is a practice of wearing rabbinically prohibited shotnays. So what does that mean? Right? It could mean one of two things. It could mean that when people put their costumes together, they don't worry whether or not they're rabbinically prohibited shotnays. Or it could mean that like people are affirmatively trying to wear rabbinically prohibited shotnays, right? The second one is more interesting, though. I think, like, just from the language of the Ramah, not obvious that that's what he means. Um, it seems like it would be expensive to go out and buy clothes that you could only wear this one day. Unless what you're doing is throwing together scraps. That's sort of what I think is but like. But it has to be sewn together in some way, right? It's, or is it just in order to be shotnays? Yeah. Yeah, it's not just wearing one. Not wearing one on top of the other, but like for example, if there are different ways of, I, I read, I, I guess I'll say this now. There's a whole article trying to connect this practice, maybe, which I think is totally implausible historically. But somebody wrote this, trying to connect this practice to this verse about Mordechai at Tamlis Nehamelech, because the list of things that Mordechai wears includes something made of linen and some things that are arguably made of wool, 
Right? How could he be wearing those together? And there's this whole thing about, well, maybe he, well, you know, they were separated. It wasn't that they were sewn to each other. It was like one was sewn to another piece of material and that was sewn to another one. And that's only forbidden dur- Durbanan. Um, and so he was allowed to because of some reason. Um, so, right, this person was trying to claim, well, that people were, people knew that about Mordechai and therefore they were trying to emulate this by affirmatively wearing rabbinic shotnays. That seems, it seems unlikely, though it is kind of interesting. Um, right, I mean, I think, right, it has to be, the wool and the linen, I don't, I'm not an expert on this, have to be attached in certain ways in order to be biblical shotnays, and there are certain kinds of, like, lesser ways of attaching, where, like, let's say you have wool on one side and linen on the other side, and you have a strip of something else in the middle, so it's not really shotnays, and then you tie it together in the front, then it becomes rabbinic shotnays if you tie it together. Um... But can you layer one over the other? Yeah, you can wear two different garments that are not attached. Okay. Um, but can they touch each other? Or yeah, okay. as far as I know. I did pearl embroidery, which is exactly wool and linen. So does that mean you can't make any garments out of it? Um, you are not supposed to make garments out of wool and linen. Mm-hmm. Or like wear things that are made out of them, even if they're not. So far I'm making color cover, so... <laughs> Alright. <laughs> well, something to be aware of. Um, Would that be bad? What, for Chal? Never know. I don't think so. But you probably shouldn't put it on your head. For fun. I don't know. Although right then there's a whole discussion also about if it's not clothing, you're not really wearing it, what does it count? But I mean, I don't know. So it seems to me like right, the, uh, the plausible experiences here is that they're using things that they sort of have as scraps and kind of throwing them together in some way. Not on top of each other, but meaning like, I don't think that they're buying clothing. Meaning like, if you read, it depends on when, but meaning like, certainly like in, lots of medieval Europe, like people did not have, they have like, like two sets things, of clothing at all. They're not going to make like, their own clothing. Right. They they're not going to make like new clothing it. just for Purim, right? Yeah. Like they get new clothing for Pesach and then they wear it for six months. Like, yeah. um, right, like there's a whole discussion about, um, you know, there, there are many interesting like chronicles of Purim like from later on, you know, the 18th century, 19th, 19th century, more like, you know, Europe, where it's talking about how like, you know, how do they get costumes? But, like one of the reasons that people are switching clothes is because they're not like, they don't have the resources to actually create new clothes. So in order to wear something funny, you just have to wear somebody else's clothes, right? Like, mm-hmm. um, so, so right. So the Ramah seems to say, so far he said, for, he just, remember, he just starts out by saying it's permitted, right? And then he says, some people say it's forbidden. This is on the third line. But the practice where I live is like the first Understanding, which is that these things are permitted because they're just for Purim's sake, they're not for anything more nefarious. Um, similarly, people who like, you know, steal from each other as, in a joking way. Um, that's not for, forbidden as stealing. And in fact, they, that is how people behave. Um, as long as they don't do anything too bad, according to the Tubehayir, right? This language is basically lifted from the Maharimans, as we just saw. Does the stealing refer to something that the boys were doing? Like, does it in, could it involve women? It sounds, if it involved women, to be a very flirtatious kind of thing. It sounded like boys from each other. Okay. Um, I don't know if that means that women were not doing it from each other. I think it probably has to do with like who's sort of. But they weren't doing it, men. And women I don't think doing so. It okay. Though it does sound kind of flirtatious, right? If it were, but I think like, I mean, I think it's similar to right like. It's almost like they're like treating or something, right? Like people going around just kind of taking stuff that they want. I don't know. And in which case, right? Like even today, you see in Brooklyn, right? Like the people really going door to door tend to be male on Purim. Um, 
and you would imagine all the more so in these times, although it depends where. I think in Italy it might, or in England it was probably more co-ed activities. Um, in any case, right? So the Ramah says, yeah, it's fine, it's fine. It's just, it's all in good fun on Purim, right? Notice this is the Ramah. The Shulchan Aruch hasn't mentioned any of this because this is not a practice in the Shulchan Aruch. And in fact, right, the Ravad Yosef, who comes down very much against switching clothing on Purim, um, says like, yeah, this isn't even like a real minhag at all, right? It's only this crazy Ashkenazi who came up with this stuff. Um, but I think it was not the practice, I mean, like just historically, it was not the practice even semi-recently in the Middle Eastern Jewish communities, right? Before they came to Israel necessarily, maybe like before they had serious contact with the Ashkenazi Jewish community, like in the tw- 19th century, late 19th century, something like that. Um, so, fine. In the Mishnah Burah, which we've already kind of seen once, um, no, not this Mishnah Burah, sorry. So this Mishnah Burah, right? So the Ramah said, Minhag right? Right, everybody practices according to the first permissive ex- opinion, we're in source number four. Again, Biyorade, right, he cites this other Taz, Taz is one of the commentaries on the Shulchan Aruch, who says, Shigesh Levatel Minhag right? We should, you know, like, nullify or eliminate this custom. People shouldn't wear opposite gender clothing on Purim and they shouldn't do it at weddings. The Chach Katav, this book that I'm not sure what it means, Sham. Ve'im kol hamalbushim shalish, right? Right, so first he says, right, like, really, I know people are doing this, but we should not. It's not right. Ve'im kol hamalbushim shalish, Right, like let's say you're wearing a suit and then you put on like a petticoat over it just so it's like silly, but you're not dressed as a woman, you a man, right? Or the other way around, a woman wearing a fedora or something. Then fedoras now fedoras are formal also. But, but see, like this is why these categories are fluid. But like, right, a woman wearing something that at her time is considered manly, right? But she's also wearing a dress. Um, and they're sort of they're identifiable. Right, and identifiable is interesting, right? Because if you think about it, what are we describing? We're describing people switching clothing and wearing masks. So you, you can't even see their face necessarily. Meaning, like, usually you can tell if it's, like, a teenage girl dressed as Mordechai or a teenage boy dressed as Mordechai because you can see their face. But if you can't see their face, then, like, you really have no idea whether you're talking to a man or a woman until they maybe hear their voice or whatever, but meaning whether you're looking at um, and I think that's sort of the thing that makes a lot of the rabbis uneasy, and they're like, oh, well, it's fun for Purim, but, you know, like, the Mishnah Burr does not think that that is so fun, um, right? So if it's clear, you can at least tell whether somebody's a man or a woman, then that's okay for him. Um, maybe then you don't have to. Regarding this case, you can see the Shla, which is a Kabbalistic work that we saw previously. Right? But, you know, really you should stay away from even that. Um, and then he says, and, and he says similarly with the, um, the stolen stuff, right, since it's not really considered stealing, you're allowed to make a bracha. Ordinarily, you're not allowed to make a bracha on stolen food because it's kind of like, you know, you're missing the point of the bracha, right? Um, right, even though you're allowed to make a bracha on this food, the shla still wrote that this is not like a pious way to behave, to steal food and be like, oh, well, stealing is permitted on board. Um Somebody who wants to guard his soul will not wear these kind of kilayim clothing or, and will not be snatching stuff from other people. Um, so in some ways you see this kind of coming full, I don't know, full circle, but right, like, 
in 13th centuries anywhere, right? If somebody said, is a man allowed to wear a woman's outfit on Purim? Basically, everybody would probably have said no, because there's this verse in the Torah that said man should not wear a woman's outfit, right? Then, like, everybody starts to do it, and then all the rabbis are like, well, it must be okay because everybody, everybody's doing it, basically, including the children of great rabbis and whatever. Um, and it kind of takes off as a practice, and by the time you get, like, you know, two or three hundred years later, everybody kind of comes back to the original text and is like, well, I mean, is it really okay? Like, those are not such compelling reasons, we really shouldn't do this. And part of it may be, like, textual reasons, part of it may also be that, like, they don't, they do not appreciate the, the sort of, like, type of I don't know, disregard for ordinary rules that Purim has come to entail. Right? We saw the Mishnah Burr previously, and we'll see again. Right? He really doesn't like that everybody's making so much noise during the Megillah. Like, and I would say like, these two strains are still kind of alive. Right? Some people are kind of like, yeah, it's Purim. Purim is fun. Have fun on Purim. And some people are kind of like, they want to put all the Purim activities into existing halakha categories. They want to have a normal halakha discussion about it. Is it better not to? Is it better to? Right? Even this question of, can you make a bracha on the food that you're snatching? Right? Like, it seems like not the kind of mindset that you would be having if you were the person who was actually doing the food snatching, right? Um, so, like, I would say today, right, it depends on, like, the context and the person, what kind of answer you'll get, right? Like, in a yeshiva setting, you will get a lot of this, like, well, it's better not to because the mission board says not to or whatever, right? And, like, you know, in a shul setting, if somebody, a random congregant comes up to their rabbi, they're probably more likely to get it, that's okay. Or like you know, I'm not going to say I'm not going to say no, right? Certainly, rabbis not going to most rabbis are not going to get up in their shul and be like, no cross-dressing on Purim, right? Because like, it's doomed to fail, and you know they would rather everybody be kind of like. You want to get people to come and right. get them to stay home. Not get them to sort of like. I mean, also there's the you don't want to get them to like be knowingly defying you as opposed to just sort of doing what they think is right. Um, so that's sort of sort of where I would say leave the switching clothing situation and I think like I, I guess I'll tell one more story right so this idea that right like when people are are wearing costumes on Purim they're really unrecognizable um as opposed meaning like it's like a gorilla costume it's not like you know whatever people wear where you see their face but like you know it's something where you can't really tell who's inside there's the story is about and this is like it's told like third hand in a book that quotes somebody else so like who knows about the Ramah, that he used to go around in Purim dressed as a poor person, right? Because poor people, like, you know, and they have freedom to ask for anything they want in Purim, basically. But he used to go around, he would always ask, he would go to people's houses, and he would ask them for water, he would say, like, do you have any water? I have to wash my hands, so I haven't done Meyer yet. As a way to remind people to daven Meyer, because as we saw, right, people would go to Mincha, then they would go home and have their Suda, and they were supposed to daven Meyer at home, where ordinarily they would be in Shul, and maybe some of them are forgetting. So he wanted to sort of, like, gently remind them that, like, oh, it's Meyer time. Um, which is again, right, like sort of a funny tension between this sort of like being unrecognizable, uh, switching of identities, whatever, at the same time like in service of sort of like this very halachic order. Um, but he's the rabbi. So I don't know if that really happened or not, but that is the story. Um, right, and people didn't know who he was because he was dressed up. Okay. So that is where I would leave it on the costumes front. Um, right, the general practice seems to have originated in medieval Ashkenaz, probably in. Italy, right, is not really a Spartac practice until very recently, um, right, all of the kinds of, like, dresses that people will give, about, you know, Esther is about Hastarat Panim, right, like, in general, this, like, theological idea that the book of Esther is about, like, hiding the face of God, which comes from the Gemara, right, um, and we hide our faces, stuff like that, it's all very nice, but it's not, like, the source of the practice, it seems, it's sort of a back formation, 
um, which is fine. I have nothing against these kind of explanations um, if they like add meaning to the practice, but that's how it is. Um, okay. So I wanted to talk briefly about the practice of clapping Haman or whatever. Um, I didn't. I was not able to just in terms of time to come up with like as many sources as I wanted, but. I gave you for a little bit of cheating the Jewish encyclopedia, but let's look first at Deuteronomy 25. Um, This is pretty familiar, perhaps. Um, page 428. Recall that which Amalek did to you when you left, were leaving Egypt. Right when you, uh, when God sort of gives you rest from your territorial enemies, right, in the land of Israel. Um, then you should erase the memory of Amalek from the from under the sky, do not forget. Right, another passage that is um, difficult for contemporary people, right? Um, right, so the there's this idea of erasing. Literally, the word is erase. Erase the memory of Amalek, right? And there's a, there's a rabbinic idea, right? It's not it's not just the memory, like, right, wiping them out, but it's sort of like even even if the name, if the word was written down on a stone, you would have to sort of like erase it. Um, so Amalek is relevant to Purim. How? Because Haman. Right. Haman is the Agagite. Agag is the king of Amalek, right? And it's seen it, right? And, and we saw, right, when the, in, in the rabbinic mind, when Esther writes to the sages, right, write me down for, you know, include my book in the canon, basically, they say, well, they have this whole debate as to how many times the, the war against Amalek is supposed to appear, right? That, like, Esther sort of, like, fits into the paradigm of the war against Amalek, right? And Haman is the Amalek, right? Um, so, right. We can just look at, does one of you guys want to read this? Let's see a little bit more. Um, I'm burning him in an effigy is a little bit separate. Um, I guess I'll just tell you this outside, and I'm sorry I don't have more, more actual sources about it, but basically like the, the, the practice of like going, making no, of noise making started with people sort of like banging things that had Haman's name written on them as a way of like erasing them. Like they would write Haman on wood and then they would like bang it during the Megillah or like on Purim in general as sort of a way of erasing it. Right, or the same way people in Europe even just write on the bottom of their shoe and then they stamp. Um, so it started with that and then it sort of just escalated and set into general noise making to drown out the name, which is somewhat separate. Although like a weirdly antinomian thing, right? Because as we talked about, right, you're supposed to hear the whole Megillah, but then like also we everybody's like very invested in this practice of making noise so that you can't hear the whole Megillah. It's a little strange. Um, so that's sort of where it came from, but there's there's this other practice that I think is kind of interesting, and I'll read something else about it also, right? Um, I guess I can read it. 
Right. Outside the synagogue, the pranks indulged in on Purim, this is the Jewish Encyclopedia, I think it was written in like the 1920s or teens, I believe, and now it is out in the public domain on the internet, hooray. Um, outside the synagogue, the pranks indulged in on Purim by both children and adults have been carried even to a greater extreme, right? Some of them date from Talmudic period. Um, as early as the 5th century, and especially in the Golden period, it was the custom to burn Haman in effigy. Right? This also, like, he has here sources like, this is apparently discussed in sort of Roman law. In a way. I, didn't, I didn't even know that until I learned this. Right? This is described in the something as follows. I don't know what that is. I think that probably should say Arosh. For far, for four or five days before Purim, the young men make an effigy of Haman and hang it on the roof. On Purim itself, they make a bonfire into which they cast the effigy while they stand around joking and singing, at the same time holding a ring above the fire and waving it from side to side to the fire. Right there, this is attested in the Gaonic times. Also, people were like jumping over fires on Purim. Um, right, so th- this is a very old practice of burning Haman in effigy. Um, in Italy, the Jewish children used to arrange themselves in rows and pelt one another with nuts. While the adults rode through the street with fir branches in their hands, shattered or blew trumpets around a doll representing Haman, which was finally burned with due solemnity at the stake. Right. In Frankfurt on the Main, it was mine, sorry, it was customary to make a house of wax. This is very elaborate, right, where the figures of Haman and his executioner also of wax were placed side by side. The whole was then put on the Almemar, I don't know what that's supposed to say, where stood also the wax figures of Zeresh, the wife of Haman, and two guards one to her right and the other to her left, all attired in a flimsy manner and with pipes in their mouths. As soon as the reader began to read the Megillah, the house with all its occupants was set on fire to the enjoyment of the spectators. Um, it must be mentioned here that these customs often aroused the wrath of Christians who interpret them as a disguised attempt to ridicule Jesus um, and issued prohibitions against them. For example, right, in already 394, already like we're talking the 4th century, um, in the 5th century. Moreover, the rabbis themselves, to avoid danger, tried to abolish the obnoxious customs, often even calling them the magistracy to their aid, as in London in 1783. Um, so this practice of burning Haman in effigy, I just wanted to read one more thing about it, right? I think, the reason I, I think it's relevant to the Grogger thing is because it shows you that the original thing is about destroying Haman himself in some symbolic way, not necessarily about making noise during the Megillah process. Uh, but there's this book, which I recently uh, managed to destroy just by carrying around. This, this is copies from the JTS Library. It's called the Purim Anthology. It sort of was published in the 50s. It was apparently very common then. It's kind of interesting. It's weirdly dated in certain ways. Um, and it has an account of a, a Jewish serviceman who was in, stationed in Persia in 1944 as part of World War II. I, think, I just, I don't know. I'll read it because I think it's interesting. Right. Um, with the approach of Tani Esther, however, the color and drama of Perm in Persia made themselves evident, and remote antiquity came to new life in our own day. But there's sort of like an Orientalist tone here. He's like, I went there, and it's like, you know, they're living in, the, in a previous century, right? Um, as in days gone by, even a thousand years ago, in Gaonic times, the children constructed an effigy of Haman, which they proceeded to burn. A cardboard figure, right, they probably didn't have cardboard in Gaonic times. Now they do. Hooray. <laughs> Makes it easier. Clothed in rags was fixed to a wooden stake, which was inserted in a hole in the brick floor of the courtyard of the synagogue. Perhaps this was just a chance crack, but it seemed to me the hole had been left in the floor expressly for this purpose. Children of all sizes, boys and girls, right, which is interesting also because previously we saw it was just boys, um, jumped impatiently, each armed with a long stick. When all was in readiness, the teacher gave the order, and kerosene was poured about the kindling wood at the base of the figure. The flames curled about its feet. The children circled the flaming figure, chanting as they moved. Their chant was in Arabic, and as translated for me into Hebrew meant, this is Haman and Purim, and the basket is on his head. 
Right, baskets on his head might be a reference to. The baker? Yes, right. The baker, in his dream, says the basket is, I, there was a basket of things of, of um, bread on my head and the birds were eating it. And Joseph said, that means you're going to get, your, the Pharaoh is going to hang you after three days, right? Which is, in fact, what happened. So he mentions that, right? And then he says, as the flames mounted, the children beat the figure with their sticks. Sometimes they chanted the Haman of, they changed the Haman of their chant to Hitler, right? So meaning, like, it was very, it was resonant for them in their time. I think that's sort of, it's very, I don't know, I thought that was very interesting and pretty evocative, right? That, like, I mean, these are also Jews who were not, not in a country that was directly involved in World War II, right? right? Um, so, yeah. Right, and then they do this thing, he reports they do this thing where they're jumping over it, and he's like, oh, aren't they going to get hurt? And their teacher's like, oh, no, no, that's our custom, right? Um, anyways. So, so, right, so this custom of burning common in effigy was still being done six or seven years ago, but perhaps not anymore. I don't know if people still do that. I've never heard of it. Sounds kind of horrifying, like, what would your neighbors think if right. you doing that? Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, like, listen, I would say in general we have a tendency to, like, elide the violent aspects of the Purim story. I don't know how you say that, the Purim story, right? Like, the whole ninth chapter is, like, this big war of killing of a lot of people. And we kind of are like, well, whatever. Like, we always end the story with, like, you know, and then the Jews were saved, hooray. Um, it's not exactly like that story. So I would say like maybe in previous generations they had more of a tolerance for or interest in the actual violence at the end than we do. Um, I mean it still is today like you know a an anti-Semitic trope of like you know the Jews are celebrating killing us on pork. Um, meaning us like non-Jews in general. Um, like when I was looking for one of the, I looked for like Burning Common and Effigy, like the third website that came up was like David Duke. Um, perhaps a good reason not to engage in the practice, among others. Um, right, but I mean, it's sort of, it's also right, like if you want to sort of look at it sociologically, right, historically, the reason that you're acting this out on Purim is like Purim is the day where you pretend that the actual power structures are different than they are. Right, and all of these times that they wouldn't like, they much more identified probably with the Jews of Shushan pre Mordechai coming to power than post. Right, like they sort of felt more like in the precarious position of like a Haman could arise at any time and then we would be just like them. Right, so the idea that like oh but we could really defeat him is acting out a fantasy that you can act out on Purim but you can't necessarily count on in real life. Um, which is sort of like part of like, I mean, whatever, there's a lot to say about, right, Purim, Purim has this diasporic holiday and Purim, there's a lot of parallels between, that's why the basket is on his head is actually really interesting because there's, there's a lot of linguistic parallels between Joseph and Esther. And they both, right, just, you know, like they're both sort of a Jewish person in a position of power in a non-Jewish court. I mean, there's, there's no relation between Haman and the baker, right? It's just... No, it's, it's I don't think It's Joseph and Esther that... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, not that I can think of. Like, listen, they, they both get hung on a tree. Um, but hanged on a tree, I guess. Well, um, fine. Okay, and this Mishnah Burr, which we've seen before, but how he says, you know, like, you know, the Shulchan Aruch says that it's good to bring your children to school, to Shul, I guess the community, yeah, right? 
Right, the Shulchan Aruch said it was good to bring your children to Shul. Right, this is on page six. It's not just that the children don't even hear the Megillah. Right, they also like cause all this confusion. That even the adults can no longer hear. Right, the whole reason they come is to hit Haman, and now we can understand that turn of phrase. Right. It's not like to hit something else when you say Haman's word. It's Lahakoda Taman, either to hit maybe like a picture of Haman or to hit the word Haman in some way. Um, right, this is not good education. Right, so from, a, from the educational perspective, every father should keep his little children near him. Right, they should listen. Then, like, you know, they could do what they have to do when the time comes, but they should also be paying attention. Right, but not that that's like the major point that people come is to do this stuff, which seems like Right, popular practice. The Mishnahberg member is the one who also was against, you know, like all the things that they were not permitted about snatching and cross-dressing and wearing shotnades, right? Like he does not like a lot of these Purim. <coughs> this sort of like Purim lawlessness, which makes sense, right? It makes sense for like a leak, the author of a code of Jewish law not to like the lawlessness of Purim, right? What is in fact, what's surprising is that the Ramah is like, okay, yeah, whatever, you could do these things that would otherwise seem to be like completely per- prohibited biblically. Um, so let's leave that aside. But, um, Right. I would say, like, if anything, right, the fact that rabbis don't like, some rabbis don't like these practices tells you something about what they are, which is that they're, right, you can explain them away as simchat purim, but, like, what is a simchat really? It's a very kind of antinomian merriment, right? Um, so that's sort of something to think about. Um, on that note, let's see source number 10 for the end. So let's, if we skip past to page after page seven to this photocopy, I just wanted to do like a little bit of learning. This is from a book called Mickey Lot's Starim, right? Um, which is a play on words. There's actually several books called Mickey Lot's Starim. Mickey Lot's Starim, people wrote things called Masechet Purim. It's basically like an early Purim Torah. I believe this one is from the 15th century in Italy, although we're on this page. What does the Hebrew word mean? So that's what we'll talk about. Well, that's funny. Um, no, so let's think about it for a second. It could mean, it's probably a thought, right? right? First of all, what is it supposed what's, what's the actual Megillah for? Megillah has to Right? Right? So, first of all, it has the same root, Esther and Starim, right? So, it's a, pl- it's a pun on Esther, but what does Starim mean? It can be two things, right? Um, Contradiction or destruction, right? And hiding, right? As we said before, Esther is often connected with like the hiding of God's face and right? So Sarim could be like hidden, or it could be um, destruction, right? Like one of the machot on Shabbat is so tear, like destroyed. Um, so it's probably kind of both, right? It's like Megillah Sarim, like on the one hand, it's kind of. It's well, we'll see what it's like, but it's saying, right, this, these are the real secrets of Purim. But also, like, this kind of writing or thinking is destructive, or you might call it subversive, right? Um, as we'll see, right? So, Chabak Buk, right? It's, I, mean, I don't know, you may or not find this funny. It's somewhat funny, but it's, like, rabbinically funny. Um, <laughs> so, you, you can decide whether rabbis are actually funny or not. Chabak um, Buk, 
Right? Who's that? Is that a real person? No, right? Chabakbuk is like a pun, right? Chabakuk is a real prophet. Chabakbuk is like, what does bakbuk mean? Bottle. Right. So it's like, a lot of these are sort of like elegies to drinking. So, right? So, like the bottle prophet, Kibel Torah mi Karmi, right? He received the Torah from Karmi, right? The vineyard guy. Umasra le Noah. And he passed it on to Noah. Benoach le Lot. Velot la Chayosef. Achayosef le Naval ha Karmeli. Venaval ha Karmeli le Venhadad. Venhadad le Belshazzar. Belshazzar le Achashverosh. Achashverosh le Rav Bibi. Right? So, who, who are all these people? Or what, what do they supposedly have in common? Okay, so why is Noah here? We're talking about passing something alcohol related. Because he gets drunk. Right, Noah gets the first person right. to get drunk. Right. Noah Lot, Lot also gets drunk, right? There's also linguistic parallels between Noah and Lot yeah. for another time as well, right? Lot to the brothers of Yosef, which must be a reference to Midrash talking about Achay Yosef, right? After they put him in the pit, then they sit down to eat and drink. Um, that's not, that's not on Midrash, so that's in the Torah, but meaning what, were they actually drunk or were they just drinking? And the brothers to Naval HaKarmeli, um, and he to Ben Haddad, right, all the way to Belshazzar, to Achashverosh, to Rav Bibi, right? Bimei Rav Bibi nitma'atu halivavot, right? Then people's hearts got kind of smaller, right? So first of all, what is this a play on? Chabakuki bel Torah karmi. This is the first Mishnah of Pirkei Avot. Moshe ki bel Torah Sinai. Right. So like you're taking like the fundamental Mishnah about like what is Torah about, and you're making it into some like a joke about alcohol. Right. So like it. That's what I mean by subversive because it sounds the same. It's the same language, but like it's not. The point is you can talk. You can talk in the same way and have it be acknowledged like a conceitedly meaningless. It's the first mission in Pirkei Avot. It's not. It's a joke. It's a play on the first mission in Pirkei Avot. Right. Um, right. So, Bimei Mar Bibi, in the time of our Bibi, Nitma, two Halavavot, then people got kind of like, you know, less worthy in some way. They saw that the Torah was about to be forgotten from Israel. Right. They, because they saw that they wrote it down, right? And this is, this is also a play on a real Gemara that talks about why did they write down the Torah Shabbat, right? Isn't the oral Torah supposed to be ora, oral? Well, they wrote it down because they saw otherwise it was going to be forgotten. And it says, eight less of Lashem Torah right? Like the, the Pshah, the simple meaning of that verse is like, it's time to act for God because other people are destroying your Torah. But the way the rabbis understand it is sometimes it's time to act for God and destroy your Torah in order to do so. Um, right? Right, and the implication is sort of like, and this is that writing down. Like, I'm writing this down because I'm afraid that this Torah is going to be forgotten. Meaning, like, this is so serious, so I'm going to break, like, big rules to sort of write down this Torah for and for you. Right, right. When, when Adar starts, then you start to have legal discourses about the rules of Purim. Right, some people say, no, it's from the second Shabbos in Purim. Right, the Shabbos right before Purim, Shabbat Zachor, but other people disagree with them. Um, Right. If you're going on a journey, right? If you're going in a caravan or you're going in um, on the by sea, right? You can do that as long as you'll be back before Rosh Chodesh Adar. But otherwise, you're not allowed to. Avar Right. If you transgressed and you left town before Purim, right? This is not true. But Beitin Shibim Kamo Modiin Lemalkam 
Bemashinoi Samach. I don't know exactly what that means, actually. Ubiadol Ancho, right? So, oh, there's this thing called the Purim King, which this is a reference to. There was this practice of having sort of like a fake king on Purim who would like be in charge of the city. And it was often sort of like a lowly person or whatever. It's like a random person who's now like the king, right? So if somebody leaves before Purim, then you tell the Purim king. That's what this sounds like to me, right? And he can he can punish him as he sees fit. Right? Um, any kind of punishment, right? Like death. I don't, I don't think this means like... It, it's. It's either it's a total joke and it's not talking about a real Purim king, or it's talking about that like actually the real Purim king can like you know punish you for disrespecting Purim, but like obviously not actually put you to death. Um, right, and they can't forgive him. Right, any city that has ten Israelites in it, right, they have to appoint a king, right, a Purim king, right, as it says, you should put. You shall surely place a king upon you. Ve'im ein ba'asarab, but if there are not ten people in it, the manin alehem shoftim v'shotrim. Shneamar shoftim v'shotrim t'shen l'chav v'chol sherechah. Then they have sort of like officers, not a king per se. Um, there's a few things to say about this. First of all, right, this is, I don't know if you can gather this, but it's, it's, it's written in rabbinic language. It's the same language as the Mishnah or the Gemara. Second of all, it's similar, it's sort of themes that are like the actual um Masechet Megillah and the Mishnah, where the Masechet Megillah and the Mishnah is very concerned with sort of like, when do you read the Megillah in small cities? When do you read it in medium cities? When do you read it in walled cities? You know, well, how, how big is a small city? Depends how many people are there, right? So this whole idea of like big and small cities is, is playing off of the Mishnah and Masechet Megillah. Um, right, so that's the end of the, the so-called Mishnah, right? Now we have the Gemara. Matni l'hu rab bibi l'rab achabuye, right? Um, right, which is interesting. It's switched to it's switched to Aramaic here, right? Rav Bibi used to sorry, Rav Bibi used to teach this to Rav Achadbuye. Chabakfu kibel Torah mikarmi Amarlo, right? So he told he told him this Mishnah. Chabakfu received the Torah from the from the from the, from the what's it called vineyard guy. Amarlo v'chi Chabakuk shmo v'halo Bakuk shmo. Wait, was that really his name? Wasn't his name Bakuk? Shneamar mibnei bakbuk, right? As we see in another verse where it says, "Business children of bakbuk, not chabakbuk," right? Amar le in bekushta shapir kamar. It's true, you have spoken correctly. Bakbuk havashme. His name was bakbuk. V'lama nikrashmo chabakbuk. Why is he called chabakbuk in this Mishnah then? Mifnei shehusif lahem liYisrael chet mitzvot because he added eight commandments for Israel, right? So we add a chet to his name. Okay. Right, he gave eight commandments, right? Simcha, merriment, shtia, drinking, shimush, arsa, I think means like, you know, sort of reclining on a couch, if, if I'm correct, I'm not sure about that. Uminui malka, right, appointing a king, vidayane, and judges. Umechal dufsha bechalva, eating sort of honey or date honey with with milk, v'shar mechle, and other foods, v'dolol l'mishtemaya, and not to drink water. Right, because water is not wine. V'hatanya, memchat nevim v'sheva neviyot, amdu lahem l'Yisrael, v'kulam lo pichatu, v'lo hotira amashekatu, but Torah, wait a minute, prophets are not allowed to add commandments to the Torah. Right? Um, so how are we going to resolve that? So-called contradiction, evai, ema, 
Kodem Moshe Hava, right? Bakbuk actually appeared before Moshe, so he was allowed to add prophet, add commandments. The Hanoach Kabilmine, right? Because, you know, he, he transmitted to Noach, so he's obviously before the giving of the Torah, that's why it was okay. Va'ava Mitorah, Sheva'al Pehavi, Ushachachum Vachazrubi Yestum, right? So meaning like, these were supposed to be part of the Torah, Baal Pehavi, and they forgot, and they put them back. Not sure exactly how it works. Amarle, Anyway, so meaning like you get the like these kind of these exact words almost will appear in Gemara's right like I don't know so people write um, yeah and people people write things like this now like these fake Gemara you know the halachos of Halloween or whatever where you like it's sort of something similar where you can take the Gemara language and you could just make it like into something completely opposite. Um, and I think it is sort of subversive and kind of interesting. And it's interesting that it's that old. I was somewhat surprised by that. And if people were writing written parodies in 15th century Italy, it probably means they were doing oral ones significantly before that, right? When is this one from? I believe that this is... So that, as I said, there's a few that were published, and I'm pretty sure that this one is the one from the 15th century Italy. Um, anyways. So one can look... Anyway, um, that's, that's kind of, it's kind of interesting that these things are out there, and I think right, it's something, if you, if you think to what we've, maybe to tie it a little bit together, right, the things that we've seen today, we've seen little hints of this elsewhere, right, we saw this, this whole thing of costumes, wearing costumes that make you unrecognizable, right, one, two of the ways to accomplish that are switching between genders, which is ordinarily biblically forbidden, or this idea of wearing shot names, right, like that seems sort of weird, that's also forbidden, um, right, so like in general, costumes sort of make it unclear who's who, and then in fact you're doing it in a potentially otherwise forbidden way, right? The idea of sort of making noise during the time of the thing that you're supposed to hear. Um, right, I, mean, I guess the point is that one gets the sense, even if you can explain each of these things on their own, that there is a general ethos of Purim that's very much about like subversiveness or antinomian, or antinomian is a meaning against law anti-lawfulness, right, on some level, right, that, like, the, right, people snatching stuff from each other, and, like, well, on Purim, everybody kind of, that's okay, on Purim, like, there are no, like, the ordinary rules that, like, we require to have an ordered society do not exist in the same way, like, that's kind of, it's somewhat surprising and strange, and, like, you know, whatever, like, sociologists of religion talk about this a lot, there's, like, words for it, which I don't entirely understand, right, communitas or something, I don't know, meaning, like, a lot of religions sort of have liminal periods where the ordinary rules don't apply, religions or cultures, you could say, right? So Purim seems to be ours. Um, and I guess I just wanted to bring one possibility of how this is connected. Um, so to come back to the very beginning, right? Um, on the end, verse 10, sorry, question. Ah, source 10, um, which is from verse 5, sorry, the end of chapter 4 in Esther, right? Amar Rabbi Abba. Right, the verse is Esther says, right, I will come to the king against the law, and as I perish, I perish. Right, which we said that the straightforward meaning is, as I, if, if the king decides to kill me because I've broken the law, then so be it. This is an emergency. Right, um, right, he's saying, no, it's not, we're not talking about the mere activity of coming to the king against the law of Persia, we're talking about her approaching the king against Jewish law, 
right? How so, right? She's not, so the rabbis think that Esther is married to Mordechai, first of all. But even if she wasn't, she's probably not allowed to sleep with a non-Jewish king, but let's assume that she is married to Mordechai, right? So until now, right, Right. Until now, it's basically she's. It's been any sexual activity that has happened between her and Achashverosh has been against her will. Right. I don't know if that means violently or just means like really, what's her choice here? Right. Like she gets Like she gets taken to the palace. She doesn't. She doesn't ask for anything more, even in her whole like makeover session. Right. She's just like she's passive in the whole beginning of the Book of Esther because like, you know, that that's just she is right. Like other men, men tell her what to do. Ahasuerus kind of tells her where to go. He decides to marry her. Right? It's not she doesn't she doesn't get to say yes or no. Right? When the king decides to marry you, then you're married to the king, and like that's just how it is. Right? But now for the first time, if she is taking the initiative to kind of come to him, then any sexual sort of connection that happens after that is going to be not against her will. I guess is the idea. Um, right? So that's how they understand it. Right? Right now it's willing. Right as I'm lost, I'm lost. These two avadati. Right, just as I have already been separated from my my um, my parental home, right? Because Esther is an orphan. So I will be lost from you, Mordechai. Right, my new home, my marital home. Right, the idea that they're married. So meaning, once she has, she willingly sleeps with the non-Jewish king, then that's adultery, and she's no longer going to be allowed to return to her husband, Mordechai. Right. So, like, setting aside the question of like why you want to make Esther and Mordechai married, right? The rule that she's breaking in order to come to the king here is not the rule of Persia, right? The, the, the role of rules in the Megillah is itself kind of, right, like, the Megillah is itself a sort of a subversive satire about how does law work, right? Because the king's rules seem to be pretty stupid, right? The king's rule is, like, whoever has my ring can say whatever they want, except for something that somebody else already said the opposite. Then you just have to say the opposite and let people fight it out, right? Like... It seems like it's like sort of overly formal, sort of bizarre, like not well thought out. It's sort of a it's a satire on like the nature of law on some level. Um, so the rabbis are sort of transferring that not to making fun of not, well here they're not making fun of right, but not to sort of like the thing that's being problematized necessarily being Persian law or law in general, but like Esther has to break rabbinic law in order to accomplish the, the her plan, like her salvation that she's looking for, right? Um, right, and so. That is something that it gets picked up. I mean, I'm going to it's picked up in Chassidut and gets picked up in the following. This is one example of that. The Sas Emes, which is the first Gera Rebbe, I believe, um, on Shmot for Purim, 56:37, which would be, you know, 1900 or so, I guess. I don't know, a little earlier, 18 something. Right, so Esther says, "Go gather all the Jews, and then you know they should fast for me, and then I'll go to the king, and as I perish, I perish." Right. Um, those who are found in Shushan, etc. They understood that this all came about, this whole thing with Haman and the threat that they were under came about because the Jews had participated in Achashverosh's banquet and they shouldn't have done that. Right? This is also like a common rabbinic trope, right? They shouldn't have done that either because they're not supposed to be drinking with non-Jews or because like Achashverosh's banquet was in celebration, in partial celebration of his vanquishing the Jews and of the Beit Midash not being rebuilt and he's using the Kaleem from the Beit Midash according to the rabbis, right? And the Jews should not be celebrating with him when what he's doing is basically celebrating how he's destroyed their commonwealth um, or his ancestors or whatever. Um, right? So that was a sin, according to the right? 
like I mean, the, the basic rabbinic understanding is like the Jewish participation in that banquet was a sin, right? Therefore, like that sort of is what started this whole thing, right? And Esther and Mordechai knew that that their, the Jewish participation in the banquet was part of like sort of started this whole problem. Right. Right. Just as right, Hanim Shaim Shushan. I think it's previously right when it talks about make a banquet for everybody who's found in, in Shushan. Now she says, make a banquet. You know, not make a banquet. Make everybody fast. Right. They're fasting now is sort of like a tikkun, like to fix their their feasting previously. Shazek Kayal Ben Israel. That refers to Ben Israel. Kemoshe Dershu Chachamim Pasuk Shtei Ben Otecha Nitzal Tfan. Uvezehataanit. Let's see that. Right, this fast, tiknu zehachet, right, this fast fixes the sin of the banquet. Veshavu b'tshuvashlema, and they repent. You can shake your head. I'm just wondering, the text doesn't indicate that Mordechai and Esther were married. No. Like, why would the rabbis go so out of their way to create such a convoluted story to say that they're married and then to say that the Jews participated in the drinking? Right. When all it does is hurt the Jewish people and the Jewish reputation, why would they do that? Why would they come up with an so explanation? So I think the two things are separate. So first of all, there is a drasha, like Esther Levat. They say she wasn't his. It wasn't like a daughter. It was like his house. So it's true. It's like it's subverts the meaning of the pasuk. I've actually I read something about it, which I'm totally forgetting, which sort of tried to make sense of it and like give an explanation for why you would do that. Um, I'm not entirely sure. On the second one, in terms of right, like the Jews participating in the banquet, right, you can see it as kind of right. If 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 in like a general thematic way, the Megillah is about right the role of Jews in exile, right, the place of Jews in exile. Part of the theme seems to be that like the Jews were quote unquote too comfortable in Persia, right. In which case, like saying they shouldn't have participated, they participated in the banquet when they shouldn't have, is a way of kind of like reifying that and putting it into one location. Right, like it is sensitive to something in the Megillah, even if the Megillah isn't talking particularly about that activity. Well, it makes sense if the Jews had been killed, but in the end they weren't killed, so ultimately participating in the banquet didn't hurt them. Yeah, I mean, like, I guess right, his, his frame would be like they were threatened because of that, and then they did chuba, and that's why they weren't killed, right? It's not because it wasn't a big deal, it's because they, they realized what a big deal it had been. Okay. Um, Right, that's what it says, right? Veshavu b'tshuvah shleman, they did complete tshuva. Vehu pela, right? This is astonishing. Right? That's actually really interesting, because if the, the banquet is the source of the problem, it was actually also the beginning of the solution, because through that banquet is how Vashti got killed, and that's how Esther became to be the queen, etc., right? So, like, the same thing kind of starts both tracks that are then going to meet up to, to solve each other. Um, this is what the rabbi said regarding repentance out of love as opposed to out of fear right? things that were previously considered sort of like intentional sins that are counted against you now not only are they erased but they actually turn into the things that help you right? that like there's something about the tshuva of I mean in general like there's a rabbinic idea which is not crazy of like Purim at the time of the Jews sort of returning to their religion in whatever way. So like the thing that could have been the source of destruction for them now instead is the source for salvation, right? Um, God saw that that's what would happen. That's why we have a feast on this day. Just as they sort of 
turned the feast into a fast and therefore into something that would save them, so do we now have a feast sort of in memory, like a redemptive memory of the, of the way that the feast led to everything, right? The Yeshlomar, Zeh Perush HaPasuk, that, maybe this is the explanation of the verse, Uluchein Avo El HaMelech Asher Lo Kedat, right? The explanation is, Shahatikrovet el haborei farachihiyah al yadeh hachedatzma, right? Avo el hamelch asher lo kadat, I will come to the king, right? Not only lo kadat is against Jewish law, hamelch here is not hamelch chashverosh, it's hamelch God, right? I will come to the king against the law, meaning by, through my original transgression and the repentance that it entailed, that is how I come close to God, okay? V'hu shalo kadat al yadeh tshuva, right? Against the law by tshuva, right? So I mean, this is sort of right. We've seen the chen avol hamelat right? It sort of has three steps. The first step is avol like I Esther will come to King Achashverosh against Persian law, and if he kills me, he kills me. The rabbis then say I Esther will come, and maybe it's also a play on avol hamelach being having potentially like a sexual connotation, right? I will like I will come willingly to the king, and if that means that I lose my marriage to Mordechai, so be it, right? As against Jewish law. Right, that Esther is breaking Jewish law in order to save the people. Now we have even more so, right? That like the ultimate, like sort of positive relationship with God that may come out of the story of Purim is only made possible through the original sin and repentance, right? Which is kind of like I don't know. I don't want to say more than that. Sin or repentance is fasting. Right. The sin is like whatever participation in Persian culture or in the banquet, according to the rabbis, right? And the repentance is fasting, sort of, and repenting, sort of, changing your attitude, whatever. Um, so, I guess the point is that the Megillah itself, or certainly later commentaries on it, themselves contain this idea of like a little bit of antinomianism, right? That there's something about, there's something about breaking the law that is sometimes not entirely negative, right? And that like the practices of Purim that are kind of breaking the law, yeah, sure, like you, one road is just to be like, oh no, it's not really breaking the law. It's actually, even though the verse says men should not wear women's clothes, it's actually permitted for men to wear women's clothes for the following reasons. But like, even though you can give that kind of local explanation, it still seems that the practices have underneath them some level of sort of like law breaking. And that, I guess the reason I brought these last things is this is food for thought, further thought on Purim, but that like Purim itself, the Megillah itself is a story where like law breaking is kind of underlies a lot of it. Um, and it's sort of, a, I mean, I don't know. It's a challenge, I guess, to the ordinary, like, halakhic order of things. Um, and it's interesting, right? Right. Some, sometimes that means the rabbinic answer is just like, well, you can't do any of that thing because Purim is just like any other day. But sometimes the answer is to give an outlet for it on this one day for these things that, like, there are, there are truths there about, like, things that can be accessed only through sinning and repenting versus through always sort of towing the line. Um, to give access to those truths on, in a controlled way. Um, happy Purim. That is what I would say. <laughs> I hope that was... I don't know. Anybody have thoughts or additions? Thank you guys for coming. Um, Can I just ask you one yeah. question? All of the practices, the burning Haman and effigy, the costumes, does that correspond to Christian? Um, I mean, the burning Haman and effigy seems to be pre-Christian, possibly. But the, the, the costumes, I think, yeah, I mean, like, if you ask a historian, it comes from Carnival, um, right, which is around the same time of the year, and it's fun, and, like, yes, I would say, on some level, yeah. Um, right, and a lot of, sort of, like, the absurdity, the silliness of Purim 
is mostly in Ashkenazi places. I think it's not an accident. But the effigy thing, actually, as we saw, it appeared in Iran and wherever. But like, the yeah, the this kind of like antinomian form seems to be more of an Ashkenazi phenomenon. And I think that that is, I don't know what that says about like the cult, different cultures that people are living in. But I think it definitely has to do with like being in Europe and the carnival, the carnival connection is particularly strong.